The Lord be with you. I want to begin by thanking everyone involved, especially Reverend Puckett, for this kind invitation to be with you this morning. Uh, also, as an Old Testament professor, let me officially and publicly commend any and all responsible for this summer series on the Minor Prophets, since those books don't get a lot of attention in the pulpit, do they? In fact, I remember a few years ago doing some research on the Old Testament in the Revised Common Lectionary, that three-year cycle of readings that is so often used in Christian worship. Spoiler alert. The Old Testament doesn't fare very well. Seven, no less than seven of the Old Testament's 39 books don't appear in the lectionary even once. And then there are 13 more that appear only one time. Leviticus, Numbers, Judges, Esther, Nehemiah, Song of Songs, Lamentations, Joel, Jonah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Malachi. Now, I know what you're thinking because I thought it too. Who even knew these books were in the Bible? I mean, I have an Old Testament PhD, and I didn't even know that. Of course, I'm joking. Not very well, but it was there anyway. I, the more serious point is that there is much in the nooks and crannies of the Bible that goes unnoticed and unknown, but that God saw fit in God's wisdom to give us in Scripture for some good reason. And so we come this morning to the prophet Habakkuk. We don't know much about this prophet. No chronological information is included that would fix him in the reign of a particular king. Historical deductions can be made, of course, but those are of less importance than the specifics of the prophet's message. That message, according to the opening verse, is called an oracle, or more woodenly, a, a burden in Hebrew, something that must be carried we're also told that Habakkuk saw this burdensome message in some way. What's that supposed to mean, we wonder? But we don't have to wait for long because the prophet's voice erupts in the very next verse, full of confusion and complaint. And like any good psalmist or saint, Habakkuk levels all that straight at God. The burden that Habakkuk has seen and complains about is, is straightforward, but it's gut-wrenching. It concerns violence, injustice, anguish, devastation, strife, conflict. Sound familiar? I guess now we know why the first verse didn't place Habakkuk's ministry in the reign of King Jehoiakim or whoever. It's because this book was written sometime late last week. Yes, Habakkuk's burden is very, very familiar to us. We, too, like him, have witnessed this burden. We've seen it by watching what has transpired in our communities, our country, our world for the past year and a half. But in truth, for a long, long time before that. And so Habakkuk, like us, feels it's time to complain about all this. He asks God for help, but gets no answers. He begs God to save, but gets no relief. That sounds familiar, too, doesn't it? And we're only two verses in, and Habakkuk is just getting warmed up. 
He presses the point. God's good law is useless, he says, utterly ineffective in the face of these real troubles. And without the Lord's heavenly Torah in place, well, it's no surprise that justice doesn't last, that justice gets completely twisted and warped. So that's what Habakkuk says. Sounds pretty harsh, but also fairly accurate if you think about it. I don't need to rehearse all the comparisons in our own day. You know them firsthand. We know them firsthand from what we see on our news feeds and what we see looking back at us in the mirror. Violence, injustice, anguish, devastation, strife, conflict. Yep, all of what bothers Habakkuk and then some. That's the way of the world these days. And that's the American way. And not just recently. No, it's been that way. It's been this way for a very, very long time. Thus says the prophet Habakkuk, at any rate. But he's not alone, is he? What he says echoes here and now among us, but it also echoes way back when with the psalmists and the saints who are often as riddled with questions and doubt as with answers and confidence. Turns out that the great communion of saints has its fair share of complainers, and with good reason. Habakkuk, it seems, belongs to that great cloud of complainers. Maybe we should call him Saint Habakkuk, patron saint of complaint. Perhaps his saintly status, though, perhaps that is what explains why Habakkuk gets something that few of us seem to ever get ourselves, a direct response from God. Habakkuk had complained, remember, that God didn't listen, but what do you know? God did, and God has something to say in reply. But, as is so often the case, the divine reply isn't exactly comforting. <laughs> Turns out, God really does have a plan for Habakkuk's life. Habakkuk won't like it, but God has one. God's plan involves using the Chaldeans, uh, the Babylonians is what we would call them now. And God proceeds to describe their destructive ways in great and gory detail to the prophet Habakkuk. Nope, that doesn't sound much like an answer to the prophet's complaints at all. God's answer, let's, let's put it in scare quotes, shall we? God's answer sounds like more violence, more destruction, more anguish, only this time it comes at the hands of a foreign superpower that acts on the authority of none other than the Lord God of Israel. On the basis of other texts in the Bible, the idea is evidently that God will use the Babylonians to punish those who are doing wrong in Israel, but God never explicitly says that. It has to be presumed. This Babylonian option seems like a very bad idea to St. Habakkuk. He's listened to God's plan to use these out-of-control, hyper-violent Babylonians, and he knows where that's heading. So he simply has to say something, and he does, leveling a second complaint at God. Oh, Lord, don't let us die, is how it begins. Kind of goes downhill from there. 
Even if the Babylonians are some sort of divine instrument of punishment, this just shouldn't be how God operates. God should know better, for heaven's sake. Habakkuk says, God, you're holy, pure, unable to look on disaster and dastardly deeds. And that's exactly what the Babylonians cause. That's exactly what the Babylonians do. And what's worse, even if they do serve a divine purpose, the Babylonians themselves are completely oblivious to that fact. They don't worship the Lord. They only worship their own power. Thus says the prophet Habakkuk. To the Lord, mind you, in the second of two body blows to the Godhead. The first told God, you never do anything about the world's real problems. The second said, well, let me take that back. It appears you are doing something, but it will only make things worse. Shouldn't you rethink this, God? And at that point, St. Habakkuk rests his case. He takes a seat on the city wall waiting to see what will happen. How, he asks, will God respond to my complaint? And he's not the only one wondering, is he? We're sort of sitting next to him on the wall waiting to see what happens. Well, once again... We don't have to wait for long because the Lord responds a second time in the very next verse. What's remarkable about this second reply, other than that it comes in the first place, is that God basically grants the prophet's point. Habakkuk's right. But then God directs St. Habakkuk's attention to a vision for the future that's different and better. And in this case, we do have to wait for a spell because the vision may be delayed, God admits. But don't worry about that. It's definitely on the way, God promises. It will be right on time. It it won't be late. This hopeful vision of the future that is presently en route is to be made both plain, obvious, even clear. God instructs Habakkuk to write it down plainly. Perhaps that means in big enough letters that an Olympian sprinting past would still be able to read them. Or maybe the point is that the clarity of the vision inspires a messenger to immediately just run off spreading the good news abroad. Either way, this vision is to go public and to go viral. The gist of the vision is that things aren't going to go so well for the arrogant. Presumably, that group reverse first and foremost to those destructive Babylonians. Turns out, St. Habakkuk was right. God may want to use these people, may in fact have already used them, but they end up going too far, way too far. The vision says that all that's left for arrogant people who go beyond God's mandate is doom. They're destined for judgment, for destruction. That's the future God promises in this second reply. Well, that's good news, isn't it, if you've been beaten up on by the Babylonians? 
or are about to be beaten up on by the Babylonians. But even God acknowledges this good news hasn't happened yet. It's a vision for the future to take place at a nondescript, vague, appointed time. Sure, God promises it won't delay, but God also says that, you know, if perchance it tarries a bit, and let's face it, it always tarries a bit. If it tarries, well, then we have to just sort of settle in and wait for it. This is where things get tricky, if you ask me. It's hard to wait, isn't it? In fact, that's the whole reason Habakkuk has been complaining in the first place. All the doom that should be coming on the wayward souls in Israel or in Babylonia isn't happening. What is happening is all those folks' bad behavior, their arrogance, greed, bloodshed, violence, injustice, drunkenness, etc., etc., etc. Again, that list could have been written late last week. Late last night, for heaven's sake. We're dealing with that list right here and now, and that list is also what the prophet Habakkuk was dealing with way back when. We haven't made much progress, not much forward progress at all, have we? And yes, God has made big promises. They are on the way, plain and obvious and all that, but they are inevitably delayed, tarrying interminably. So things seem to be at something of an impasse. And so no one would blame good old St. Habakkuk if he'd gone back to where he started in chapter 1. Uh, excuse me, God. Right, yes. Hey, listen. Great idea with the vision and all that. Really great. Much better than the Babylonian move. But, uh, well, Lord, you know, you see, proof is in the pudding. And can I just remind you what I said earlier? But Habakkuk doesn't do that. He does something else instead. Something odd, actually, and something quite remarkable. He prays. According to chapter 3, verse 1, the rest of the book is an extended prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. Now, I know what you might be thinking at this point. Well, of course, St. Habakkuk prays because he's a saint. And praying is what saints do. But who but saints really do that? And who but saints really like to do that? Who has time to pray except saints? And so it seems we've arrived at that point in the sermon, inevitable usually, right, when we should all feel guilty about not praying more. I confess, I'll go first, that I've felt plenty of guilt about prayer over the course of my life. I'm, I'm not doing it enough. I'm not doing it right. I don't know how to do it in the first place. But before any of us gets depressed about our sickly, non-saintly prayer lives, we should listen again to St. Habakkuk because he teaches us two important lessons about prayer. The first lesson is that chapter 3 isn't the prophet's only prayer in the book that bears his name. Everything Habakkuk has said in his complaints in the first two chapters is equally also 
prayer, his disappointment over God's absence, for instance, his concerns that God doesn't have the right idea, all of that is prayer, real prayer, real gritty prayer. It seems to me that even us non-saintly types can get behind that kind of prayer, am I right? In fact, I think we excel in this type of gritty complaint all the time. We just fail to do it in prayer to God. But if gritty complaint works, I mean, even if only occasionally, if it works with our spouses or friends or therapists or neighbors, well, then it should work also, at least in theory, with God. Take it to the Lord in prayer is how that old hymn puts it. What a friend we have in Jesus, it adds, all our sins and griefs to bear. St. Habakkuk's first lesson on prayer is that God can handle all our disappointment and sorrow and rage. And who knows? God may even have an answer. We may not like the answer, but how would we know if we don't even give a chance to God to respond in the first place? The prophet Habakkuk teaches us that we don't need beautiful language or a sweet disposition to pray. All we need is something to complain about and a sense of where to direct the complaint. The second lesson Habakkuk teaches us about praying is found in his final prayer in chapter 3, which is an extended recollection of God's majestic appearance, marching from parts south, striding over the earth, accompanied by pestilence and plague, melting mountains and hills, scaring pretty much everything and everyone half to death. What a prayer, right? A bit disconcerting, even frightening, we might say. We don't normally speak about God in such terms, but it's an impressive presentation nevertheless. This prayer that concludes the book of Habakkuk is nothing less than a theophany, describing the awesome arrival of the Almighty God. But what is that doing in the prayer of a saint known primarily for his complaints? Well, I mean, it's not a bad way to end the book, right? I mean, if nothing else, it presents a God who is worthy of, of praise and obedience. And in that sense, Habakkuk 3 could easily find a home among the hymns of praise in the Psalter. In fact, a few of the biblical psalms contain theophanies that sound an awful lot like Habakkuk 3. And the same is true of some texts from Deuteronomy and Judges and elsewhere in the Old Testament. What those comparable passages suggest, I think, is that in chapter 3, St. Habakkuk has gone back to the wondrous depth of Scripture, to prior texts, and to earlier traditions in order to find just the right words for this specific moment. He's already prayed two real gritty prayers and has heard two difficult answers. The first was the not-so-hot news about the Babylonians. The second answer is that the answer is coming. But that's only so helpful in the face of so much pain and pressure in the present. And so, 
St. Habakkuk, opens up his well-used dog-eared Bible, as it were, digs around in the Psalms a bit, and then over in the Pentateuch, and then in the historical books, and finds what he needs to hear, what his people need to hear. Maybe even what God needs to hear, because remember, this is the prophet's prayer to the Lord. And what Habakkuk finds is a prayer celebrating God's unbelievable, awe-inspiring, and downright terrifying capacities. Here comes the judge who will, at last, finally, and definitively set the record straight. Habakkuk has found in the old, old story exactly what he needs to get by in the difficult time of waiting. Well, we know all about this kind of waiting, don't we? We've yelled about violence and injustice and all the rest, whether to God or to our friends and enemies on Facebook or just in our own heads, and the needle hasn't budged. And I know at points like this, old, tired, hackneyed truisms about God's now and not yet kingdom often swoop in, don't they? Here's how that idea goes, if you're not familiar with it, but I trust you are. Here it is. Yes, of course, God's rule, God's reign is already here now. But it's also not yet, because it still lies out ahead of it. Wait for it and all that. We hear this sort of thing a lot in sermons on the New Testament, but it's already here in Habakkuk. The vision is coming, God says in chapter 2, but you have to wait for it. You have to wait for it, but I promise it's coming. Now and not yet, you see. Cute, but a bit cliche if we're honest, especially in very hard times. Habakkuk chapter 3 says something different, however. Something that may be more helpful to those of us who aren't very good at waiting or who are sick and tired of it. Chapter 3 says that way back when, in olden times, Bible times, if you will, we didn't have to wait. God came from Teman. The Holy One stepped forth from Mount Paran. God's majesty covered the earth. God marched out to save the Lord's people. God smashed the house of wickedness. God rescued the oppressors. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. But that was all back then. It isn't now. It's what we're waiting for now. But the prayer of St. Habakkuk in chapter 3 says we don't have to wait for long. Because get this, because we can read all about it in Scripture where it is plain and obvious. And then we can run with the good news. The not yet that we wait for is already here and now in Scripture.
Let me say that again. The not yet that we wait for is already here, now, in Scripture. In chapters 1 and 2, Habakkuk only had to wait one verse to hear the Lord's answer, but the same exact thing is true in chapter 3 when he flipped the page, so to speak, from God's vision of the future to God's mighty deeds of old. And the same is true for us, or can be, if we learn this lesson about prayer and Scripture, this lesson about prayer from Scripture, brought to us by Habakkuk, patron saint of gritty complaint, but also patron saint of gritty, hard-nosed Bible study. No, we don't always get the answers we want. Not now, not here. But we nevertheless know something about the answers we need. We know that they are on the way, most definitely. But we also know, or should, that they have already been experienced in the past by our ancestors in the faith by the communion of saints. Read the vision, then run with the good news. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. These things happen to them to serve as an example, and they were written down to instruct us on whom the end of the age has come. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Thanks be to God for God's indescribable gift. Amen.